Welcome to More Than Medicine, where Jesus is more than enough for the ills that plague our culture and our country. Hosted by author and physician Dr. Robert Jackson, his wife Carlotta, and their daughter Hannah Miller, this program will help you understand that human beings are more than just physiology, that for people there's more than just diagnosis and treatment, and that in life there's more than just medicine for a cure. This is More Than Medicine, and the doctor is in. Welcome in to More Than Medicine. I'm Dr. Robert Jackson, family practice physician, and I'm your host today. And my special guest today is my very own daughter, Hannah Miller. And Ms. Hannah, welcome today. And I, we have a special and different topic today. We're going to talk about social democracy. And we're going to talk about New Zealand. If you know anything about your history... Back in the 1950s, New Zealand was a very prosperous economy. They were a capitalistic economy. And then suddenly that country took a turn and decided they wanted to be a socialistic country. And they went from being very prosperous to um, a catastrophic situation that I'm going to let Hannah describe to you in a little more detail. So I'm going to first ask Hannah, Hannah, what got you interested in this this case study and all the information that you're going to bring to us today. Well, interestingly enough, it was actually the second political paper that I, yeah, political paper that I ever wrote. It was in high school, either my junior or senior year. The first one was on eminent domain, believe it or not. I don't know how I remember this. But then the second one was this paper talking about New Zealand. And I don't remember how I thought to look into New Zealand, but it was such a fascinating story because it's one of the only cases that I know of where a country was doing exceedingly well, then they, and we have a lot that do exceeding, exceedingly well, and then adopt socialism, Venezuela being one, uh, a very recent example. But when they got to that precipice where they realized we have, you know, we've gone from being in the top 10 uh, for economic, for our economy in the world to now being the the bottom of the pile, instead of continuing to just plunge their country into that abyss, which is what Venezuela has done and, you know, most every other socialistic country that has gone down this road that I know of, instead, they did a total 180. And they said, we have nothing to lose here to just try something totally different. And so they have been able to progressively do better. And I thought that that was, it was fascinating to me in high school. It was a fascinating case study. But the thing that was exceedingly interesting to me and always has been is the fact that when you try to research this yourself, it's very difficult because nobody wants to be honest about what has happened in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. None of the progressives, none of the, the liberal media, none of them want to actually be true journalists and talk about what's happening. And so it's very difficult to just find the information out there because I lost that paper years ago. I don't remember. I have no idea where I sat. Maybe mom has it somewhere. So I tried to find the information again because I wanted to find those resources and have that in my pocket because I thought it was fascinating. And I, I could not until recently. I started running across and finding sources where I had a lot of that information and could save it now. Mm -hmm. So, Well, now, what has happened recently that brought this whole topic back to your mind again? So here in the United States, 
we have something called the PRO Act that our politicians are trying to pass. It didn't gain a whole lot of steam on its own because it's a catastrophe. <laughs> and so now what they're doing is sliding it into the infrastructure bill that is being debated right now. And of course, that's what our politicians do. Um, they don't, you know, they have these pet projects and so they just slide them into spending bills and infrastructure bills and all of these things. And, you know, even if it has nothing to do with infrastructure. So what's the PRO Act all And about? so, yes. And so the PRO Act is a sweeping bill that will really and truly upend the labor market in the U.S. It would create a process that could replace workers' actual votes, including votes not to unionize with a majority of workers signed cards saying they support holding a union election. Now, that's especially problematic considering that union organizers not infrequently use intimidation, misrepresentation, and baseless promise to get workers to sign those cards. And in addition, a fundamental aspect of our, of our democracy is the right to vote in secret and free from fear and intimidation whether voting for political representation or for workplace representation. So this act is directly influencing unions. And um, here in the United States, it's a broad, broad bill that would basically annihilate any of the right-to-work states. We have 27 right-to-work states here in the United States. Um, it would basically abolish those and say every state has to have uh, and, and get rid of the right-to-work. And so... It's really, and then there's just a lot of other issues. The PRO Act would, well, like I said, invalidate 27 states' uh, right-to-work laws and allow unions to take a portion of wage, workers' wages directly from their paychecks without their consent, and then furthermore, without regard to their stated opposition. So even if they say that they don't want it, you know, they're not, so they can't consent to it, and if, even if they're opposed to it, they're not going to, um, they don't have a right to it. So... Then, in addition, it's going to grant a third party the right to confiscate workers' wages against their wishes. In addition to that, this provision would undermine state lawmakers' ability to enact laws leading to more employment opportunities, stronger income growth, and faster-growing economies. So it's going to really cut the knees out from underneath state lawmakers who are actually trying to do things to help folks who are in some of these warehouses and large businesses that want to try to work their way up. And then further, uh, it would violate workers' privacy by requiring employers to disclose more personal information about their employees to union organizers than they actually do to the IRS. And that includes their home address, their cell phone numbers, their home numbers. It's a lot of information, personal email addresses, and things like that, that will all end up in an electronically searchable format. And so again, that kind of goes back to you know, you often have a lot of intimidation that happens with unions and union organizers. Um, there's a lot of just things that are just bad news about it. And this came up, uh, has come up again, because in Alabama, there is an Amazon warehouse where the workers voted 1,798 to 738 against unionizing. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they voted massively, 71% voted against unionizing. And see, this is just a bill to, you know, the, the PRO Act is essentially just a bill to keep unions relevant because within the private sector, about 6% of workers are unionized and 94% of that 6%, it didn't really happen with their will. Like they didn't want it. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of times it's very easy. You sign something and bam, you're in the union and you have no idea that that's, you know, it's just kind of forced in with other things. And it's very, very difficult to get out of a union mm -hmm. once you're in. And a lot of these folks were also grandfathered in, like the business, the corporation or company that they're with. So it's just a very, very much a dying thing in the private sector. And unions are getting pretty desperate.
So yeah, yeah. I understand. Well, now talk. Let's back up a little bit and let's sure. go back to New Zealand and bring us up to speed on the history of what actually happened in New Zealand. Well, as you said, in the 1950s, they were one of the 10 wealthiest countries on the planet. They had a relatively free economy. Uh, they had strong protections for enterprise and property. But then, you know, we saw a growing interest in the welfare state I, and in those ideas that were in Britain, in the United States, most of the Western world began to embrace a lot of those ideas, and New Zealand was another one of them. Mm -hmm. And so the next two decades for New Zealand produced just a harvest of big government and stagnation. Uh, increasingly, New Zealanders found themselves victims of exorbitant tariffs, torturous regulations, massive farm subsidies, a huge public debt. They also had chronic budget deficits, rising inflation, costly labor strifes. They had a top marginal income tax rate of 66% and a gold-plated incentive-sapping welfare system. And that all probably sounds very familiar to those of us in the United States because mm -hmm. those exact things are what we're staring in the face here in the U.S. Yeah, I was getting ready to say that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, the other thing is the central government during those years owned, um, established its own monopolies in the rail, telecommunications, and electric power businesses. And about the only things that grew during the period from about 1975 to 1983 were unemployment, taxes, and government spending, which all three, again, sound very familiar. That's right. The only so. thing they didn't have a monopoly on was big tech, but it was probably because big tech didn't exist around, back really. then. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Well, now, what, what led their redirection, Miss Hannah? Well, obviously, something changed in New Zealand, and they decided to do the 180 that you talked about. Tell us about that. Well, their GDP had just absolutely plummeted. They had gone from being, you know, one of the top 10 uh, most wealthiest countries in the world to being literally at at the bottom of the do of the economic pile mm -hmm. in the world. Very quickly, a matter of two decades, they had done this to themselves. And so, as I said earlier, they were one of, you know, they were staring at this precipice and they said, well, we can just continue down this road and plummet their, our country, continues down into poverty even more, or we can do a complete 180. And so they, I don't really know why, um, you know, I, there's uh, what possessed these and those three people who really led this revolution or redirection, I guess uh, is probably yeah, the best word, yeah. this 180. And they just said, no, you know what? This has not been working for 20 years, about tw two decades, and we're just going to go the other direction. And so they just totally turned, and it happened very quickly in comparison to, you know, you and I trying to do things here in the United States where it feels like it's, you know, steering the Titanic yeah, uh, to yeah. get, uh, to move the needle politically. Mm-hmm. Well, then, what all this this redirection that you're talking about? What all did it entail? This was well. Before I go to that, there was I would be remiss to not mention the two people who were most responsible for this redirection, and that was Roger Douglas and Ruth Richardson. There's actually the stories told by Bill Frezza in a video that you can find. I believe it's on YouTube. And then another was the economist Roger Care, and Care is K E R R, and I believe there's also a a video about him or about kind of what happened in New Zealand and that's by a Swedish author Johan Norberg and it really does a good job 
talking about the socialist nightmare that prompted the free market reforms and mm-hmm. what was exactly going on. And, you know, we don't have enough time for me to sit here and just hammer through what all of the numbers were. And that can get a little bit boring, too, of what their GDP was and what their, you know, what they were bringing in as a country versus what they were exporting and all of that. Um, but just suffice to say, it's very familiar to what <laughs> we're dealing with here in the United States that really nobody wants to talk about. And what's so they were doing the same thing. And those three people, like I said, Ruth Richardson, Roger Douglas, and Roger Care, all were Were those elected officials or just people in the country that led the charge? No, Roger Care was just an economist. And I forget what Roger Douglas and Ruth Richardson's roles were in in, in New Zealand. It's been a while since I was reading about them. I think that at least one of them was in office, mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. I would I, I forget. So don't don't hold me to that. Mm-hmm. All right. So they began this redirection. What what did they do? What what actually happened? So well, here here's just I'll just start with a list. All farm subsidies ended within six months. Okay. Tariffs were cut by two thirds almost immediately, and even to this day, the average tariff is about one point four percent. Mm-hmm. Um, most imports enter the country completely free or very, very nearly so and of any quota duty or other restriction essentially mm-hmm. taxes were also slashed like i said earlier um the top rate was 66 percent. it was cut in half to 33 percent and then the books were finally um, this was imperative the books were finally open to the people so they could actually see what the government uh, elites really in Wellington were spending their money on and mm-hmm. so they actually had the, a level of transparency, transparency yep, yep and accountability that they had not had before mm-hmm. um, in New Zealand and so from the mid 1980s into the 1990s the New Zealand government also they sold off dozens of money losing state enterprises of the government workforce in 1984 stood at about 88,000 and then in 1996 after the most radical downsizing anywhere in recent memory its public sector workforce stood at less than 36,000 per uh, 36,000 a reduction of 59 Mm percent and so one of the things that I wrote about when I was in high school was talking about how people really panicked over that and that's what you find if you try to research this was the panic over Look, these tens of thousands of people are out of work now. What are they doing? You know, this was a horrible thing to do. And that's one of the arguments that's brought up mm-hmm. here in the mm-hmm. United States is how <laughs> we can't downsize because All we can't, yeah, we can't deal with the unemployment. Well, the, as I just said, they went, they had a 59% downsizing from the public workforce as far as the, the government, who the government employed. Well, sometime later, uh, researchers and journalists went back to the folks that had worked for the government and they said, well, what are you doing now? And, and they said the same thing. And they said, well, what do you mean the same thing? And they're like, well, I'm doing the same thing. I just do it for my own Pro- business yeah. instead of, or a private company versus the government. Mm-hmm. And they well, they were like, well, how, how's it going? And multiple of these people in these interviews said, well, I get things done six times as fast or one sixth the amount of time yeah. and I get paid three times as much. <laughs> and so they're like, it's going great. <laughs> and that was person after person after person because they said, I don't have to deal with the bureaucratic red tape that I had to deal with when I was working for the government. And of course, in addition to not working with the government, a lot of the things that happened for, you know, they not only were outside of having to work for the government, but they were also working in an economy that had just been cut loose. I mean, it they was, it was booming because of the deregulation that, yeah. that had begun to happen at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so 
All of those things were true. They were making three times as much. They were doing it in one-sixth of the time. They were dealing with far less bureaucratic red tape. And every and people were thriving. Mm-hmm. And there were some departments in, uh, in New Zealand that went, to, I think it was the Department of Forestry, that went from like about 17,000 employees to one person. Oh, my. <laughs> and there was another that had multiple, you know, thousands and thousands of employees. And they went down to 17 employees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they just realized we don't need all these people. Mm -hmm. These people can work in the private sector and they have, they moved to the private sector and they were successful in the private sector. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I I wish our country would start privatizing Mm -hmm. a lot of the services that our federal government tries to provide. Things that are not constitutional. The constitution does not provide or allow for all the things and services that our government tries to provide at taxpayers' expense. That's right. Well, you know, establishing a new business in New Zealand was made quick and easy. It was largely because regulations, like I said, they were abolished. Uh, they had so many that were abolished. Mm-hmm. And, and it was very, they were finally applied evenly across mm-hmm. the board and consistently. And then this is what connects us to the story earlier about the PRO Act. One of the major things that they did was they, the compulsory union membership was abolished as were union monopolies over various labor markets. Mm-hmm. And that can't just be something that, you know, we slip into this conversation as a side note, because that was such a major deal to freeing people in the workforce and to allowing them to work, you know, the, the right to, they, don't, they didn't have to be under the thumb of the unions anymore. And so that's, you know, when we're looking at a country like New Zealand who went from, like I said, doing really well to then being down at the bottom of the economic dog pile to then being, and we'll talk a little bit in a minute where they're at right now, which is one of the best economies in the world. And I'll give more information on that. Then, you know, you have to, and, but unionizing and abolishing the unions was one of the compulsory union membership. Mm -hmm, I'll say that mm -hmm, abolishing mm -hmm. that aspect of unions was a massive part of what they did in New Zealand. And here we are trying to do the opposite of that. We're on the road that New Zealand was on in the 1950s. Exactly right. um, Where they were driving their economy and their people into the ground. Exactly right. And we're doing it, and you know, so in this adoption of the PRO Act and uh, eliminating right-to-work states is, you know, a massive paver in yeah, the yeah. in the road yeah. to that New Zealand was on. Well, I'm a physician, Miss Hannah, and you know, I'm concerned about socialized medicine. Talk a little bit about that. Talk about the Obamacare um, mm-hmm. and how that plays into the hands of a socialized economy. Well, one of the things that people don't understand and this is where Progressives and others are really good at taking a term and redefining it and then and making it sound a lot softer or better or even the opposite of what it actually is. Exactly. And so people look at our healthcare system and they think that it's a free market system and that it's a capitalist system and it's awful. Mm-hmm. And it is it is pretty bad here in the United States. I mean, it's not the worst in the world by any means, but as far as a first world country, we have a lot of issues with our healthcare system. And people believe it's because it's of the free market. But what they don't understand is that actually that the and so and so they think that the thing that can rescue them from this free market hospital system, healthcare system is socialism. Of course, that's what they've been told 
So that's what they believe because they don't have a good understanding of what socialism and a socialized single-payer healthcare system actually looks like because that's what we already have. Right. We don't have a true free market healthcare system in the United States. And that's really a conversation for, a, mm -hmm. you know, a whole other conversation for a different day to dive into that and to talk about how it is, how it's not in the relationship between the healthcare system and insurance yeah. <laughs> and health insurance and that marriage and how that has just destroyed our free market and healthcare. And so people have been led to believe that the problem with our healthcare system is the free market, that the answer is socialism, while at the same time, what the actual issue is, is that we actually have a very socialized healthcare system yes. in the United States. It's, it's and so socialized. what they believe is the answer is actually already the problem. Exactly right. And we just don't have a clear understanding of that here in the U.S. with our healthcare system. Yep, you're exactly right. Well, what else do you need to tell us about what happened in New Zealand before we tend to go to a conclusion here? Well, one of the things I want to talk about is where they're at right now. Um, both the Fraser Institute's Economic Freedom of the World Index and the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom rank the country as the third freest economy in the world, producing steady GDP growth as one result. The Heritage Foundation's index reveals in its analysis of New Zealand that subsidies are the lowest among OECD countries, and this has spurred the development of a vibrant and diversified agricultural sector. It also points out that there are very few limitations on investment activity, and foreign investment has been actively encouraged. The top personal income tax rate at 33% is right where it was when it was slashed in half nearly 40 years ago. How about that? So over 40 years, and they have not changed that. They've actually not changed much of anything of the reforms, that the economic reforms that they made back in the 1980s, 1990s. The Fraser Institute also ranks countries in terms of overall human freedom and in terms of personal freedom, New Zealand comes in at number one. Oh, really? And, uh, and they also come in at number four. Or in overall human freedom, they come in at number one. And in terms of personal freedom, they come in at number four. Mm. I said that wrong. So number one and number four for overall human freedom and then personal freedom. They have uh, Freedom's House Global Tally of Political Rights and Civil Liberties gives New Zealand a score of 97 out of 100, wow. placing the country in its top category for freedom. And a Reporters Without Borders rate, rates nations according to how much freedom of the press they allow. And in its latest rankings, RTB put New Zealand at number nine in the world. And the World Bank produces an annual doing business index that measures the burden of government regulations on entrepreneurs. New Zealand scores the very top position number one in the world for both starting a business and the ease of doing business. Well, so that? to open a business in the average country elsewhere in the world takes about three to four times longer than it does in New Zealand. Uh, Transparency International rates the world based on how corrupt each country's public sector is perceived to be by experts and business executives. Once again, New Zealand is number one. They're the best in the world for lack of corruption <laughs> uh, in, this, in this area. And then writing in the New Zealand Herald, well, we don't have enough time for me to read that whole quote, but um, their internet accessibility, affordability is also ranked second best behind Sweden. They have just, you know, I could go through this long quote by him, but I can't go through all of it. But another thing, uh, homeschooling is legal. And uh, in New Zealand, with minimal registration requirements, people are allowed to use a national curriculum or they can pick their own curriculum. Uh, and its popularity is growing. So about the only thing that, you know, right now I... 
Last year, you saw a lot of tyranny in New Zealand um, because of COVID, and but that was true for a lot of countries across the world, <laughs> um, even here in the United States. And so, you know, I don't necessarily hold that against them. I think that their housing market is kind of a mess. I think there's a lot of regulations and issues that they're having to hammer out with the housing market that never really got figured out in the 80s and 90s. And then their right to bear arms is not as good as here in the United States. Obviously, New Zealand's got, you know, for what we lovers of the Second Amendment and yep, the right to yep, bear arms, yep. we would not be happy with what where they're at with the right to bear arms. And so it's not a perfect country, but, you know, as I just went through... Yeah, a lot um, of here, there's very, a lot good. of things that are very, very good. And I could keep going on and on, um, with other things and talking about numbers of where they were at and where they are now, but it's just an astronomical difference. And you have that versus Venezuela, which was on the exact same path, an incredibly wealthy country that does, adopted the same ideas and plummeted themselves into, you know, economic ruin and never turned around. Well, Let's conclude our presentation by talking a little bit about a biblical perspective on this. Because, you know, our country is heading towards socialism. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there are a lot of folks in our country who think that the cure for the ills in America is for us to move away from capitalism and towards socialism. Now, our constitutional republic was founded on certain biblical principles. And some of those principles tell us that a laborer is worthy of his wages. In 1 Timothy 5.18, the Bible tells us that a laborer deserves his wages. In the book of Proverbs, the scripture says that we should go to the ant, you sluggard, <laughs> and we observe the ant, how diligent he is, how hard he works, how he prepares for himself during the summer, and he lays up his stores for the winter, and diligence in the same way that an ant is diligent is something that the Bible honors. Mm -hmm. And you see a socialist economy where the government takes away from the one who is diligent and gives to one who is not willing to work destroys all incentive to work. Mm -hmm. And that's the way socialism operates. It takes from the hard-working man and gives it to somebody who is not diligent. And that's contrary to the scripture. Also in Proverbs, it says, whoever is lazy regarding his work is also a brother to the master of destruction. Let me read that again. Whoever is lazy regarding his work is also a brother to the master mm -hmm. of destruction. And you see, socialism breeds laziness. Mm -hmm. And the reason it does so is because when the government takes away from the diligent and he's not able to get ahead in life as a result of his diligence, then the man who is diligent says, well, what's the use? Mm -hmm. What's the profit in me being diligent? Because the government is going to take away the result of my diligence. And he mm -hmm. just lays down. He quits mm -hmm. being diligent. He quits working right. hard because... The government steals from him, basically, in order to give to someone else. Well, and we're seeing a little bit of a manifestation of that right here where we live, here in South Carolina, where we've got a lot of businesses that are desperate for workers, but people don't want to go into work because they're making more money 
Stay by at staying home. at home because right. the government's sending them checks. That's right. And and so how long do you think that that business is going to stay open employing the other employees that are actually showing up for work when he might just say, you know what, I'm, why don't I just stay home That's right. and get a check from the government? Well, socialism is the death of a capitalistic economy, and our mm-hmm. founding fathers knew and mm-hmm. understand the, understood that. Well, Miss Hannah, I thank you for this very enlightening discussion about a country different from ours, but that went from prosperity to socialism and then back to capitalism again. Thank you for a very enlightening discussion. Thank you for listening to today's edition of More Than Medicine. You can follow Jackson Family Ministry on Facebook, Instagram, and on their website. Be sure to contact them via jacksonfamilyministry at gmail.com for speaking engagements and for book information. Join us next time for more than medicine.